Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and welcome to the last day of testimony in Epic versus Apple before Tim Cook actually testifies on the last day of testimony in Epic versus Apple. If you haven't been watching this from the beginning, please do check out our an antitrust epic playlist where we go over everything in great, great detail. I don't even know how long it would take you to watch this entire playlist at this point in time. Or if you're just here for the drama, the testimony, the judge's interjections, please do check out our playlist, Just the Trial, where we go over every day of testimony with only, I think at this point, one combination day when things were starting up for opening statements. Now, we're going to talk about day 14, but I'm going to warn you, this is actually likely to be a shorter episode. These are Apple's experts, a little bit like the battle of the experts during week two, but more focused specifically on Apple points of interest than it was with that kind of mixed general expertise in the second week of this trial. It is going to feel a little bit like spinning circles. I've looked at all this, I think Apple has one pretty bad witness, one pretty good witness, and one that might be neutral. So a little bit of a Goldilocks situation here. But you will also see as part of this, just a kind of general malaise, this isn't really moving the ball forward very much in this trial. And I think a lot of people sense that. Even Addie Robertson here, who we're going to be talking about, and her live tweets, has a couple of instances where she's like, I think we've gone over this already. I'm ready to get done with all of this. And, you know, she's not a lawyer. She's not a judge. But I do think it is indicative of where we're at in a discussion like this. We've heard most of these arguments. We know where the parties stand. Apple doesn't really change a whole lot here. They have one good expert and one good piece of testimony that we'll talk about, of course, as part of this video. And then Epic actually winds up asking, as we will discuss for more witnesses and a couple of other things, that the judge pretty easily says, no, 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 you knew what you were doing. We're moving on. We are finishing this thing. Uh, And I think at the end of the day, that's where we are, at least pre-Tim Cook. I expect both sides to come out guns blazing with that particular testimony. It will be Epic's last bite at the, yep, I'm going to go there, bite at the apple uh, in order to try to win this case. And I think everybody is really looking to that for day 15. That being said, there's still some interesting things here. There's some interesting procedural fights here, uh, but it is likely to be shorter if I'm just looking at my tabs. I only have, you know, 25 open instead of the 50 that I had open yesterday. So let's get to it. Day 14 of Epic, but not a fortnight because weekends, starts in five minutes. It's all Apple expert witnesses, Dominique Hansen's, James Malachowski, and Aviel Rubin. And they're all going to get a chance to talk. Aviel Rubin's testimony, or more specifically, his cross-examination by Epic, doesn't wind up finishing because of some of these procedural fights uh, that we will discuss. Uh, But everybody then ends today looking forward to Tim Cook, who is scheduled to testify uh, on the next day, day 15, the last day of testimony in the trial. Epic's lawyer tells the judge their side might call some rebuttal witnesses in response to Apple's testimony, but it's up in the air. They may also call a new witness to respond to testimony that has only just come up. Apple says it's too late to call surprise witnesses. Epic says this is an unanticipated event. It would only take 10 to 15 minutes and it's still to be determined. Judge notes there's nothing to rule on yet, so we're moving on. And now I'm going to play with the timeline a little bit and we're going to take the arguments from later on in the day and move them all up here to talk about all of this procedural stuff before we get into today's testimony, because the procedural stuff is interesting, and they did wind up having a long-form discussion about it towards the end of the day. We're back in court. This is at 4 p.m., talking about the witness Epic wants to call. So apparently, Epic wanted to call a current Apple witness, then a third-party witness, and Apple says it was misled, and then it's too late to call witnesses. Epic says that Apple's findings of fact show that in-app purchases were introduced in 2009, but a back and forth with Phil Schiller raised questions about in-app commerce opportunities before they technically launched. And we talked about this when Mr. Schiller was up and Mr. Schiller basically said, no, I'm not sure that there were other things happening before then. Epic was trying to establish that prices would have increased when Apple required people to use their in-app payment processing 
And Apple and Mr. Schiller basically said, uh, you know, I don't think that that was really happening. We don't have that discussion. Epic continued to raise it. And one of the things that Ms. Robertson here said, and, and we concurred with, was it would be interesting to know who we're talking about. What are the specifics here? Epic didn't really uh, elaborate on that. And apparently, as we'll see, wasn't expecting that answer from Mr. Schiller. As Epic continues, if these opportunities existed, uh, payments for things in an application before Apple had brought its IAP procedure to bear, then introducing IAP would have increased prices, Epic's lawyer says. And again, maybe you'd actually have to show that. And Epic apparently didn't present documents on this and wants to try to now. So they want to introduce more information about it, either by calling a rebuttal witness or filing documents. Apple says that this is the first time they've seen any justification and that Epic had its chance to submit documents already. Now is not the time for them to be attempting to kick this door open. Just procedurally, it's interesting that we're getting this in the public line. I would have expected this to be at the judge's bench, sidebar, whatever it would be, and with the line turned off for a conversation like this, but it's still useful to talk through these issues. Judge Rogers says Epic counsel can give them a page outlining the issue and she can look it over. Notes that Schiller testified three days ago. Epic's lawyer Forrest said Epic was interviewing developers who might testify. And, and this will ultimately be the killer for Epic. Judge says, wait, if you had this big problem with Schiller's testimony, that was three days ago. If you think you're going to need something, you tell us then. We're scheduling. You're bringing this up on the last day. You're not allowing Apple the chance to, to fight the need for this or to get its own cross or rebuttal ready. Uh, and Epic looks like it's playing a little bit of games by holding on to those three days until the very last day of the trial. Forrest calls the issue of in-app purchases critical. If it was so critical, you should have been prepared for it, Judge says. Uh-oh, you're not winning this. Clearly, you knew it was an issue on the 14th and on the 17th. It is an issue that I highlighted that I have to figure out. It's one of the things that is core to the case that I'm determining. No rebuttal witnesses, Judge Rogers says. At most... She'll allow the filing of documents. Forrest, Epic's lawyer, says Schiller denied what Epic believed was an obvious point, and Epic was scrambling to grab documents. It came as a surprise to me that he would deny it so vehemently, it being that people were processing payments before IAP. And Epic might be playing games on the timing, and I think that's ultimately what's going to burn them here. But certainly, when we discussed Mr. Schiller's testimony, one of the things that jumped out is it appeared that he either on his own recognizance or under orders was using the just stonewall everything method of testimony, especially on cross-examination. And a number of you came into my comments and asked me why that might be when there were a number of places where Apple could just say, yes, that's how you run a business. And I responded to those comments and said, well, the one thing about the stonewall strategy that can work is that it's easy to implement. Uh, if you are otherwise going to make admissions about things that on their face seem like they could be harmful to your case, but probably aren't, you're asking the witness to make judgment calls. And stonewalling is fine as long as you don't actually have the right answers and you're uh, able to answer to the best of your ability within kind of the contours of the oath that you've taken to the court. It can get bad when, in Mr. Schiller's case, a lot of that stonewalling strained credibility. And here was another instance where it's like, okay, if Epic knows that this has happened, and if it can show that, then you just saying no about it isn't very helpful. Now, Epic might say it wasn't expecting that. It was expecting him to say something truthfully, but they didn't have documents ready to show him what, what, what he should be talking about, why they think he's lying at the time. And so I do think the judge is right to say, look, you, you know how important this was. Doesn't seem like you were prepared for it. Then you held on to it uh, for three plus days to try to squeeze it in at the last minute. I'm not going to do that. You can present another memo or a document to me if you want. Uh, and Epic is unhappy about that. They bring it up again at the end of the day. We're still debating whether Epic will get to add more testimony about in-app purchases, but Judge Rogers shuts it down. Everybody knew what was going on, and the fairest thing is to leave the playing field as the playing field. And, you know, these are the kinds of determinations that are also the subject to appeal. Uh, certainly the overall opinion uh, will be appealed by whoever the loser is here. Uh, but some of the choices that a judge makes at the trial level are also things that can be appealed. It's one of the reasons why the appeal process can take a long time. Not that this will necessarily prove a loser in the Court of Appeals, but in instances where a trial judge is determined to have made a mistake and done something that the Court of Appeals disagrees with, 
the Court of Appeals is not a fact-finding court, so they tend to say, okay, you were wrong on that, and we have to send it back down to have an additional fact determination, and that's how you get that kind of bouncing around uh, uh, the appeals process and everything else, and it can create a much longer-term uh, problem for both parties, really, than you might anticipate from what is this rapid, uh, accelerated timeline of a trial where we're going to have an opinion before a year has passed from when Epic first acted last fall. So that's the really interesting procedural legal stuff, at least it's interesting to me, doesn't actually talk about uh, the witnesses and the testimony and the case and the legalities and all this kind of thing. Uh, but certainly Epic holding on to the fact that they had decided they wanted to do something about that Schiller testimony for three days without telling the court uh, proved to be their undoing on that particular front. And it doesn't seem like the judge is too terribly thrilled uh, about it. Now let's talk about... Uh, Dominique Hansens is a research professor at UCLA, focuses on researching marketing effectiveness. Now, we're going to talk about many experts from Apple, three of them to be precise. Uh, and I do think a lot of this testimony in particular isn't terribly useful. Now, we'll also see how it lines up with the survey uh, that I think that wasn't terribly useful for the Epic side of this case. And really, I don't think Epic versus Apple has really been a bright shining star uh, for surveyors and their methodologies in general. Hansen's is outlining his research. He conducted a survey of iOS device users, 13 plus, and he surveyed the user. He surveyed the survey work done by Peter Rossi, one of Epic's expert witnesses. Who surveys the surveyors? Hansen's apparently, and I really did like that, used it in the thumbnail, of course. The 13 plus number as opposed to 18 plus is important because Fortnite is recommended for that age and a major demographic is people under 18, says Hansen's. Now he says as opposed to 18 plus, I, I had thought that Rossi's was 16 plus. It doesn't really matter. One of the points of contention here is that Rossi, Epic's surveyor, didn't get to kids and the people that actually play Fortnite enough because he was trying to comply with things like data protection laws and COPPA and whatever else. And here Hansen says, well, you can handle those kinds of things if you're a good surveyor. Hansen says he used standard procedures to obtain parental consent for under 18s. One of Epic's expert witnesses, Rossi, contended that this wasn't feasible and Hansen's is undercutting that. He actually said it was difficult. He didn't say it was infeasible. Same goes for Hansen's collecting survey data over a 12-month period. Apple's lawyers argued that Epic's antitrust analysis relied on a month-long study during a period right after the holidays where people had very specific expectations about pricing and that skewed the study. And again, we talked at that point in time, and you can check it out earlier in the series, that I'm not sure the App Store actually has those kinds of specific consumer expectations for seasonality. But certainly if you are a regular user of iOS in the App Store, let me know if Christmas sales are a regular thing you wait for in that space. Because if it is, then Apple brings up a good point that that, that can skew those kinds of things. If you're talking about stickiness right in front of the Steam sale or right after it, that's going to be different than stickiness in the middle of uh, nothing season for PC sales. And so it is worthwhile to bring up. And yet it's also not that big of a deal one way or the other. Now his survey finds 92% of iOS respondents regularly used one non-iOS device that could access digital gaming content too. 99% could have used one. And I think probably if you're used to virtual legality right now, you can see how this survey isn't terribly useful to the court, really to Apple or to Epic. And that is to say the overall survey is just saying, hey, I've got another device I could use for Fortnite if I had to. And Epic's surveyors were focused on SNP tests, economics, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as part of this testimony. Uh, but this is unuseful to the point of why are you wasting our time in court? Yeah, okay, you've got another device. You've got an iPhone and a laptop. Uh, yes, you could potentially go to the Epic Game Store and play Fortnite. A lot of people don't have just an iPhone as their only device in their life. And yet, what does that actually tell us about the litigation happening here? And Epic is going to eviscerate this pretty good. Hansen says he takes issue with Rossi setting his hypothetical as Apple having raised prices in the past. When a consumer decides to react or not to a price change, they take the risk of a price increase of not being satisfied with a product. If you move the price back 30 days, you already know what your experience has been because you have purchased that subscription or that particular app. So two elements are conflated, price reaction and satisfaction with the product. And this is good. This is justified. And it's one of those areas that I, is another problem with the survey where I think I said when I discussed that survey that it was the wrong question asked in the wrong way to the wrong market 
and the wrong participants in that market. Uh, I think that survey that Epic proposed to try to prove SNP issues was absolutely terrible. Uh, I don't think this was much better, by the way. I think the surveyors are just not doing a great job for these particular parties uh, in this particular case. But he does point out that when you're trying to analyze SNP, you're supposed to say, if the price increases, would you leave? And what the question actually said was, okay, that $4 you spent, the price has increased. Just assume that it has when you originally bought it and it cost you $4.25 instead of $4, uh, would you leave now? And that is a complicated question. It's complicated by the fact that you have actually experienced the thing that you bought for the last 30 days. And he's right. That makes another fault with a terribly unuseful survey from Mr. Rossi and the Epic side of things. Now, Epic's lawyer, uh, Lauren uh, Moskowitz, examining his Hansons now, starts by asking if he considers himself an expert on general survey design. He says that's correct. He can't recall if he's testified in an antitrust case, and he's not positive he conducted a smartphone-related survey before. Epic's lawyer, as editorialized by Ms. Robertson, is basically asking questions to establish that Hansons doesn't have the expertise to analyze what constitutes a potential monopoly market. And yes, his survey, at least as discussed in this particular Twitter thread, is not analyzing monopoly markets, is not analyzing relevant markets at all. He's essentially up there to say lots of people that have an iPhone also have a different thing that runs Fortnite. And he's up here to say Rossi's survey was bupkis, which it is. Hansen's survey didn't specifically address the issue of substitutability, not just whether someone has access to a device, but whether it's a meaningful substitute. Absolutely. Yep, you're right, Epic. Epic is still going through numbers. The idea being that Apple used Hansen's survey to argue that virtually all iOS users were regularly accessing other devices, and in reality, its 12-month window didn't account for important questions like whether users still had those devices. So a big 12-month window, you had a device that you could have used to play Fortnite on or to otherwise use outside the iOS, and you didn't have a question or otherwise an ability to track that all those devices remained in that ecosystem for the entirety of the period, which makes it difficult. Epic's lawyer also objects that you insist that we assume that people who regularly use a game console use it to play games. Now, look, admittedly, the next generation game consoles, they haven't had a lot of new stuff come out for them, but I think most people are still playing games on them, Epic. They might just use it to watch Netflix, for instance. The survey doesn't ask for these details, like what you do with your PlayStation, what you do with anything else that you have. Uh, and Epic is right here. The survey's terrible, but... Also note how careful they probably should be with questions like this. Remember, one of the things they have tried to establish in their portion of the case is that game consoles and their walled gardens are wildly different than the phone that we're talking about because those are dedicated game systems and they are different for that purpose. In fact, when the Coalition for App Fairness goes and proposes laws in the various states that they have currently proposed them in, one of the things they try to do is make Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo happy and say, specifically by definition in those proposed laws that a gaming console, a dedicated device for that purpose is not going to be captured by what we're trying to do by mandating app stores and, and uh, opportunities to use our own in-app payment processors and whatnot. And yet you've got Epic's lawyer here trying to hit a surveyor who's already dead. They don't actually need to help with all this stuff. And using a line of questions that says, well, Aren't consoles capable of a lot more than games? Yes, yes, they are epic, but that's not great for the overall breadth of your case. Be cautious, be cautious. You don't have to kill this guy anymore. I want to make fun of, do people really play games on their game consoles, says Ms. Robertson, but my PS4 is basically a streaming device for months out of the year. And I think that happens to a lot of game consoles because there aren't games that you want to play releasing every five minutes. And that's part of why the walled gardens are all at risk, folks. You think people understand the difference between a computer, a smartphone, and a tablet? But even Hansen's didn't, lawyer says. He couldn't decide whether a Microsoft Surface was a tablet or a computer, apparently. Who can? I, I don't know. He says he determined it's both, which seems fair, says Ms. Robertson. And again, they're just trying to impugn him. And I think there's usefulness to this, but this survey is almost worthless on its face. Epic's lawyer now drilling down on the surprisingly high reporting of Windows phones, which don't exist in the current market. You know that Microsoft Windows smartphones are no longer being sold, right? Hansen's indicates that he knows this. And as we will see, he had to kick out a number of uh, results from people that said that they were currently using a Windows phone or that they had a Windows phone available to them at the same time that they had an Apple phone. Uh, Apple then tries to rehabilitate all this. Hansen clarifies that he isn't objecting to all hypothetical surveys. He just believes Rossi missed important steps. 
Yeah, I don't think a survey expert would object to all hypothetical surveys. I know I don't. I just think the Rossi survey is really pretty close to god-awful. We are back onto the Microsoft OS smartphone question, and Apple's lawyer is suggesting that maybe people have a newer Microsoft phone, even if it doesn't technically run a Microsoft OS. I guess she's talking about the Android-powered Surface Duo, but probably not 13% of users are using that. Again, what we have here is a problem where he had to kick out a lot of answers to people that said, my other device is a Windows phone. And Epic points out and says, well, those are obviously wrong answers. And he says, yeah, I kicked him out. But when you kick out such a significant amount of answers, uh, is your entire survey methodology okay? Are they confused about any other questions? It seems like that's an open question. And again, I think Epic's basically right here. Questioning goes back to Apple. We just talked about that. Epic's lawyer appears to now be saying that because a lot of survey respondents were probably confused about the Windows phone thing, Hanson should have done something to control whether everyone else was confused about the survey overall. Yes, Epic. And please let this guy go. And and he's done. Again, with Rossi and with Hanson's, just nothing of value was gained uh, on Rossi's part for Epic, for Hanson's on Apple's side. And unfortunately, I wish I could tell you more, but those surveys just didn't help really either side. And uh, Epic did a good job eviscerating Hanson's. Apple did a good job eviscerating Rossi. And we move on. With that, we're done. An expert witness, James Malakowski, is coming up. Malakowski is CEO of Ocean Tomo LLC, a financial firm. Malakowski works on intellectual property valuation, and he's here to bolster Apple's claim that its IP rights are valuable and Epic is seeking to free ride on them. Malakowski is discussing that it's important for IP owners to have the right to determine how their intellectual property is used. If you lose control over rights, you don't know if you'll get a return on the investment you've been put into developing the IP. Malakowski says free riding on IP is harmful to innovation. If that were permitted, the inventor can't reasonably predict a return on investment, so it can't reasonably judge how to make that investment initially. And in general, he's right. That's the theory of copyright law and patent law and trademark law and all the other intellectual property protections in the United States and in other jurisdictions around the world. Now, because I know my viewers and I know my commenters, I know there are a number of you that think the entirety of the intellectual property regime is untowards and should be taken down. Speaking of taking walls down, you want all of intellectual property to come down. I will tell you that that is not the position of the United States government or intellectual property jurisprudence at this point in time. You never know. Legislatures can change. Constitutions can change. But intellectual property protection actually is in the Constitution. So that's unlikely to change in the United States uh, for a good long time. But it's important to note that this theory is exactly what Malakowski says. Malakowski is a good expert, giving good witness testimony for Apple on this particular day. And he is saying, well, look, if I want to spend huge amounts of money making intellectual property, uh, and I spend that money to sell a product out into the marketplace, if I can't monetize that in some way, or if I was monetizing it and everybody thought it was fine, as Epic Expert did for a number of years, and then it wasn't fine, that makes it difficult for me to justify future development, future innovation. And if we don't have a kind of certainty under what I can or cannot do, you're going to overall depress the continued research and development of new intellectual property, which the law presumes is beneficial to consumers on the whole. In fact, when we looked at the essential facilities doctrine and the duty to deal with rivals, we saw this. We looked at this a couple of episodes ago, but this is how the Department of Justice and how in general American jurisprudence on the intellectual property question thinks about these things. If a monopolist has something that a rival wants to use to make more different or better products, it can appear that consumers would be better off if the monopolist were forced to deal with its rival. But if the monopolist is forced to deal with the rival, the monopolist's incentives to spend the necessary time and resources to innovate may be diminished. Moreover, the incentives of other firms to invest and innovate, considering the potential future returns on their investments, may be diminished if they believe they will be forced to share a successful innovation. If the incentives to innovate are diminished, consumers are likely harmed in the long run. The next iPhone, the next major product or device or other thing that you could have in your home that would benefit you doesn't get built because... Epic broke into the app store. And yes, that's a ridiculous hypothetical. Most companies are still going to go and try to get that money. But the point remains that when you've got this question, we have this proprietary intellectual property. We've spent hundreds of millions of dollars building it, which we will see in charts as part of his testimony. What we are talking about 
is a third-party actor coming in and saying, I shouldn't have to pay to access that, even though you spent money developing it. And that doesn't just change Apple. That doesn't just change the existing wall gardens. It changes everybody's decision points for the future. And the law generally thinks that might not be a good idea. And so courts are to proceed with caution on these points. And Malakowski winds up sounding a lot like a number of virtual legality episodes, especially early on in that an antitrust epic playlist where I was talking about how Epic's theory of the case eviscerates certain incentives to create intellectual property, certainly eviscerates the entire model of a walled garden. And so he continues to be a pretty effective expert for Apple, especially when taken in context with the judge earlier saying, I'm not so sure about Epic's theory because it seems like they're trying to get access to intellectual property protected by intellectual property laws, proprietary to Apple. And yes, they don't want to pay 30%. It appears they don't want to pay anything. Because if you get your own in-app payment processing, it would appear that you just have 0% that goes to Apple. Is there something else that I'm missing? And Epic says no, basically. Uh, And we'll see where that winds up. Apple spent $500 million on R&D in 2005 and $18 billion in R&D in 2020 per public numbers. Chart shows the linear rise. $18 billion in research and development. That's a fair amount of money. He says, Malakowski also looks at the steady rise of patents applied for and granted wants to note that Apple has a significant and sustained commitment to innovation based on these two charts. You've got utility patents, you've got design patents, you've got applications for utility and utility is really what we care about more. Design's how the iPhone looks for the most part. Uh, And he's trying to establish that yes, Apple is doing things to make their hardware and their product better. And the third-party developers that access the eyeballs in their market are accessing all of this for free or for more specifically, no additional cost other than the 30% commission that Apple charges. Malakowski is now running through a patent that he says is relevant to the iOS ecosystem question. It's a patent relating to the Metal Graphics API, which is the thing Epic once got on stage with Apple to talk about being awesome. That's why they keep going back to Metal. Without metal, 3D graphics like Fortnite's would be a much bigger drain on mobile device batteries, Malakowski says. Malakowski is being asked about the relationship between patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets. Says they're distinct, but they can interact. So you have a specific innovation like metal, he says. We're all four coming to play. And yeah, lawyers, all sorts of folks have trouble with these kinds of things. Metal's the name, that's the trademark. The copyright's the code. The patent is how it's working. And trade secrets and patents are on two ends of the spectrum. Trade secrets are like patents that you keep secret, you don't disclose publicly. And that's the, you know, the recipe for Kentucky Fried Chicken or what have you. Uh, patents, by the time that they are out there in the public, aren't really trade secrets, but are protected instead by a different intellectual property regime. So yes, they all kind of interact in these kinds of things, uh, but all have value. Malakowski clarifies that he had people manually go through metal-related patents to make sure they related to metal, the software tool, and not metal, the the metal, metal, the material, uh, which is good. That's what you want to do. Epic has listed which APIs it uses in other court filings, and it's talked publicly about how it uses the APIs. So there's no question it relies on these technologies, Malakowski says. Now we're looking at the Apple Developer Agreement, which Malakowski describes as an agreement by which developers are allowed to use Apple's IP. There's no fee to signing the license, he says, but there is a separate fee for putting an app on the App Store and, of course, the commission that you pay to Apple when you make sales through the App Store. Malakowski says the license for the latter paid developer agreement is limited. It's contingent on agreeing to go through app review, among other things. Yes, every license that you get to anybody else's intellectual property, unless they're really silly or you're buying whole parts of their business, is limited. It's not an unlimited license. And so you agree to the rules that they are otherwise imposing upon you. This is the kind of license you get when you buy a video game. When we talk about an end user license agreement, those licenses are limited to the uses that are specified, generally playing it on your computer or your console, and with certain restrictions attached. I'm not going to break in and figure out the source code. I'm not going to decompile or put malware onto their servers. I'm not going to do all this various number of things. That's part of the license. That's what makes it limited. And it's not unusual for this space, certainly. He concluded that logically, Epic is asking for relief that would take away Apple's control or Apple's provisions in its license agreements, requiring things like supporting a store within a store. It's not only that we would lose out on the compensation, he says, or that they would. Apple would have to support these apps going forward. It's, you can use my stuff, and I have to keep performing for you now and evermore. It's quite extreme. 
This is killer. And it's absolutely correct. And I think it's something that people have missed throughout. And you can hear me mentioning it for 30 episodes out of 50 or what have you. So we haven't missed it here in virtual legality, but a lot of folks have, which is that Epic could jailbreak their iPhone right now and they could get everybody to do it. They could issue ways that you can do it and they could put Epic Game Store on a jailbroken iPhone. You have the rights to the device that you hold. You can do certain things with it. That's pretty clear under the law. But Apple doesn't have to continue supporting that phone in the same way. It doesn't have to support the operating system that it had provided for the product initially when you do that. And what Epic is asking for is not just, I can get on the phone. They can do that. They're asking for, I can get on the phone and Apple will still treat me like everything's fine. They will still support the system with me on the phone. They will still devote whatever resources they think are necessary to make sure that their ecosystem is still protected, is still happy, that their consumers are still happy, that their brand goodwill is still there with my participation on the phone. And that is not zero cost. It doesn't have to be a high cost necessarily. And you can argue with Apple about exactly what that cost is. But in terms of support, in terms of focus, in terms of resources and personnel, that is actually doing something different. As this expert says, it is an obligation to keep performing for you now and evermore. And if you've got that side store, if you've got that in-app payment processing, then that $18 billion that Apple spends on trying to continue to innovate on their phone and their iPad and everything else is money that they spend to sell their product and you don't have to participate at all in. You get access to their phone, you get support on their phone, you don't pay them their 30%. And is that fair fundamentally is a problem that as a gut reaction, the judge had last fall, it's a gut reaction that I had when I first saw this happening. And it's a gut reaction that I think when you understand that that's what's being asked, a lot of folks have, which is no. Apple has earned something out of this. Apple has earned something out of making the product as attractive as it apparently is to so many people around the world. And Epic is 100% trying to do an end round around that. Now, you can come up on Epic's side on this. You can say, okay, well, Apple got its money from its phone. That's basically where Epic's theory lies. That's why it keeps bringing up the business model difference between phones and consoles. The obligation is essentially... They got their money from selling a phone, and now we should get our money from selling an application. But that doesn't really match the product that Apple has offered to sell. And the question becomes, does Apple have the right to control the product that it wishes to sell into the market? And in general, historically, the answer to that question has been fairly unequivocal. It's been, yes, you create a product, whatever is holistically a part of that product, you get to determine how you sell it what the price is, what the parameters of that sale are. And that's what Apple has done. And it hasn't changed since Epic's experts have said that it's a monopoly. This is a good expert for Apple, but it doesn't really change what Apple has been saying from the start. Epic's Lauren Moskowitz is now doing cross-examination. She's citing earlier cases where a court found Malachowski's testimony unreliable. Lawyer says he had some testimony excluded from the Oracle versus Google trial, a judgment on future lost profits, apparently. There are a lot of cases where Malakowski's had testimony excluded in some form. I don't know enough about courts to know if this is an unusual amount or something you'd expect from any long-running expert witness career. Well, I mean, we get the next tweet here that says it's six cases out of 50. It really depends. I don't know what the nature of these things was. Epic doesn't appear to have brought them up. There's a certain amount of rehabilitation that comes as a part of this cross-examination. But anybody that is a professional expert witness is going to come across these kinds of things, right? In this case alone, we've seen motions to declare certain bits of testimony unreliable, non-credible, uh, that the judge has basically said that she's going to ignore, with the exception of Lori Wright and Xbox, which apparently there's going to be a hearing on. Uh, but for the most part, you've had both sides trying to say, oh, this is unreliable, this is non-credible, let's get this kicked, all these kinds of things. And that's pretty normal for anybody that's presenting evidence that might be very problematic for the other side in a court case. Whether or not you actually get it kicked out, is a question. But what we have heard from this particular expert on this day's testimony is not anything that would be problematic. So they're trying to impute him, and that's good. That's what you're supposed to do on cross-examination. As somebody that's willing to say things that the court finds unreliable, says Epic's lawyer is noting that he didn't do a direct financial appraisal, et cetera, et cetera. But what he had to say, which is intellectual property is valuable, proprietary rights are valuable, the intellectual property regime says that you get to control how those things are distributed, and 
Apple knows that the judge has already expressed concerns about the fact that Apple built a product and they have proprietary rights. Don't they get to control that distribution? None of that is anything that's terribly unusual or unexpected. So it's not the kind of thing that you would expect to get kicked out. You'd expect that from more things like the surveys we've talked about as this trial, or maybe something that just is outright false and that you can prove with a document on the other end. Still, you don't want to have testimony kicked out in six cases, but six out of 50, he's clearly a professional expert witness. It'll be up to the judge to determine whether that affects credibility. Good line of attack from Epic. It doesn't really bother me in the context of what he said in this particular case. Epic's lawyer is noting that he didn't do that direct financial appraisal of R&D compared to total assets or revenue. Lawyer is asking Malakowski probing questions about whether Apple would really be giving up revenue from its IP under Epic's demands, especially compared to, say, its hardware profits. And we get back to Epic's theory, what we talked about. Apple makes enough money from hardware. We should make the money from the software. They don't get to benefit from what we did building Fortnite just because they built a really nice phone that people like. Not generally the theory that the law has said was okay before, but it might prove somewhat successful in this particular case. Again, sitting here one day out from the end of testimony, I don't really think Epic's got the the winning hand here, but certainly there are instances where they could potentially win certain concessions. Lawyer notes there are no patents listed in the developer agreement. So if you're a developer and want to know which patents you're licensing, you wouldn't see that. Well, you could find it, but it wouldn't be in this agreement. Sure, Malakowski says. Shouldn't licensing agreements actually show which, which patents are being licensed, lawyer asks. Malakowski agrees in theory. This is an interesting line of question. Again, you're just trying to impugn this person. I will tell you, having dealt with transfer agreements and intellectual property licenses and software licenses throughout my entire career, in general... You're going to get a list if a list is something that can be put on a couple of pages, but more specifically, you're going to get a description of a portfolio. You get license to all the patents useful or necessary in X, useful or necessary in bringing a bit of software to the iOS ecosystem, etc. And so when you've got a company that spends $18 billion that applies for thousands of patents and other protections for intellectual property every single year, you don't want to have an agreement that has to be amended every time that changes. You want a portfolio license that, yes, maybe you could reference something else that Apple maintains, but that ultimately gives you all the rights that you need as it changes in real time. So this can sound good. Malakowski can say, yeah, it would be great if you could have the list, but that list is hugely long and it's changing probably every day. And so a portfolio license makes a lot more sense. Epic's lawyer is also bringing up the cases in which using copyrighted code can be treated as fair use. We're getting a mention of Google versus Oracle, which hinges on this exact issue. Now, Google versus Oracle, please do check out our video here in virtual legality on it, is an extraordinarily unusual case, especially as determined by the Supreme Court. But for purposes of this conversation, what's important about understanding with respect to Google versus Oracle, is that they weren't talking about how the actual APIs operated. They had to have pages and pages and pages of talking about what it was that Google stole in order to function in Android, and that it was only menu items. It was only instructions on where to find the substance that Google actually made and didn't steal. And this is entirely different. The entirety of Malakowski's testimony here is that it's the APIs themselves, the substance that Apple has developed and built that is useful to somebody like Epic. The metal API, not the menu items, not the things that the Supreme Court has held are protected by fair use. That's entirely distinct. And honestly, a little bit specious. You're walking a line if you're Epic's lawyer here. Again, cross-examination, you get a little breadth, but come on now. Malakowski also doesn't necessarily know if Apple has directly said it doesn't allow stores within stores to protect its IP, as opposed to other reasons like protecting security, etc. No, they wouldn't. Again, Apple's main thrust here is that store within stores and the various rules in their app review procedures are designed for security purposes. You don't want to get into a situation where it's protecting our valuable property because that's much more easily attacked as something that could be anti-competitive. Oh, we don't have stores within stores because we really love our video game revenue. Uh Uh-oh. Nope, don't say that. Apple doesn't want to say that in open court. Lawyer notes that courts can conclude IP protection doesn't outweigh anti-competitive behavior if the IP claims are just being used as a pretext for shutting out competition. Yes, that's true. No one has made that claim that Apple has asked for all of these patents and intellectual property specifically to keep others out 
on the basis of app review and developers. It's not some kind of leverage point. It's just value that they provide. So Malakowski is the good expert. Uh, Hansen's was the bad expert. And now we can get to a little rehabilitation and then the neutral expert. We're back to Apple questioning. Malakowski says developer agreement is a broader portfolio agreement. So people don't have to note every single new patent Apple files and puts under it. Yep, that's the right answer. I don't know why you didn't say it first, but that's what Apple redirect is for. Apple lawyer is also coming back to the cases where Malakowski's opinion was excluded, emphasizes that he's testified in 50 cases and that he testified in some of the cases Epic's lawyer cited, just not about the specific piece of testimony that was discounted, that he didn't get his whole testimony kicked out. It was only parts of it. Now Malakowski steps down and we have Aviel Rubin, the last witness listed today. Rubin is here to testify about iOS security, a counterpoint to James Mickens, whom Epic called as one of its last witnesses. And this will, talking about looping around on conversations we've already had, sound almost exactly like some of the talking points that Apple raised yesterday. Rubin determined that Apple's App Store manual review offers significant security benefits to iOS and results in lower infection rates on phones, as well as a lower volume of malicious and untrustworthy apps in the App Store. Rubin is defining what he means by security. He looks at security as dealing with an adversary. That means there's somebody bad that wishes to cause harm. That includes safety, privacy, reliability, and trustworthiness. It's not just the malicious pieces of code that Epic's expert was focused on. We're talking about app distribution models, including centralized systems like Apple and direct distribution, where developers transmit apps to users. Phones have to be configured differently for different models, says Ruben. When you have multiple app stores, a malicious developer can submit to all those stores and hope to get into one. In a centralized app store, you have an opportunity to do as good a job as possible and not worry that another app store is going to cause a security problem. Cred Federighi said a lot of what Ruben did yesterday, says Ms. Robertson, but Ruben is talking a bit more about multiple app stores specifically rather than just the benefits of a centralized model. So it's a one-two punch, even though it's almost exactly the same substance, which is to say, yesterday we heard testimony about why a centralized model was great, and today we're hearing a little bit more about why multiple stores is bad and why a centralized model is great. Sure. Judge asks whether there are just more Android phones that are producing items like this. There's a slide with a pie chart that says infections by device are 26.46 for Android, 38.92 for Windows, 32.72 for others, and 1.72 for iOS, so significantly less on iOS. Ruben says, the truth of the matter is, in the studies I've read, the indication is globally there's about three times as many Android devices as iOS devices, but here we see the ratio is much bigger for infections on Android, and that's useful. It also doesn't tell entirely the whole story, right? What we've got with security is in part a first-past-the-post type system. You might have heard the old story, right? You're out in the woods with your buddy, and there's a bear. Who do you have to run faster than? It's not the bear. It's your buddy. So if you are more protected than Android, even marginally, and there's three times as many Androids out in the world as a confounding factor, then yes, we would expect that most black hat hackers or whatever groups you think are putting malware onto these devices are going to focus on the one with three times as many units and the one that is marginally less protected. You can envision a scenario where Epic's expert that said, well, they're pretty much the same, can get to a place where you have numbers like this while iOS is only marginally more protected. That being said, if it is in fact the case that it's a marginal benefit and it results in numbers like this, Apple actually has a stronger case because what Epic's expert wound up saying about app review is that it might do something. It's, it's marginal at best. It's a little bit of extra security. If that's the difference and it gets you to this, then every little bit of marginal security has massive effects on your market and Apple is easily justified in even increasing their security by just a little bit. So it's an interesting kind of conversation here. And I do think Apple winds up more strongly evidencing that security is necessary and that it's useful on its platform than Epic's attempts to say that the iOS alone is useful in that respect. The report here says Apple treats its app store like Fort Knox and rarely hosts dangerous apps. Contrast with Epic's repeated claims that lots of offending content can get through to the store. And again, he's reading a separate report. Ruben says concentration of dangerous apps is more important than just number of bad apps on the store. If you were to throw a dart at the app store, what are the odds that you'll hit a blacklisted app? And he's coming back 
to what we talked about yesterday, which is that Epic has tried to say it doesn't matter how many successes you've had, and that's just flatly wrong. And just in terms of logic, it does matter how successful you are. If three get through, but you stop 3,000, then you have earned something in what you are doing to protect your ecosystem and the store. That matters, and that's essentially what Ruben's saying here with his dart analogy. The report says that 98% of cyber attacks rely on social engineering, i.e. tricks that exploit psychology to make users give access to protected info. Ruben cites a piece of Android malware that pretended to be a system update and got people to give it permissions that way. This security testimony says Ms. Robertson is addressing the most extreme epic request that Apple allow sideloaded apps. Curious if we'll get any discussion of whether developers independently processing in-app purchases is safe. Apple's gestured at dangers but hasn't really delved in. No, they haven't. They've focused on the request for the sideload and the request to have their store uh, included on the Apple operating system. It really hasn't been pressed one way or the other by Epic or by Apple on the in-app payment purchasing danger question. We had a little bit of testimony uh, from either side, and I suppose it's possible you could get a court decision allowing for that and not for the sideloads, but Fundamentally, you've got the same problems that you have with the rest of the cases, that you still have to establish that they're a monopoly actor. You still have to establish that they're doing something bad by mandating their in-app payment processing. And again, on that marginal security kind of question, it is undoubtedly the case that the code you control on the Apple side is something that you feel more comfortable with than the code that you don't control. And if you have people giving up credit card information and otherwise on your store, through your app application, then you worry about liability, you worry about security, you worry about your connection and facilitation of that and endorsement of what are these third parties. And I just don't see the court going that direction. But Ms. Robertson has brought it up a number of times. So I thought I would at least give voice to that as a possibility. Ruben's now being questioned by Epic's Brent Byers now. Epic's Byers is talking about the importance of sandboxing and running down reasons Ruben argues Android is insecure, talking about how they don't necessarily apply to iOS. Like, Android fragmentation or external storage. That's true. Again, Epic has to be careful with some of this stuff because Apple's entire design approach, what they are defending in court right now is that there is a usefulness to our being able to control from birth to death the creation of an iPhone, the way it functions on the operating system, the way people can interact with it either on a developer or a customer basis, and that provides benefits. So you come in and you say, well, isn't Android more secure because it has things like fragmentation of the marketplace, separate OSs, as we've talked about in China, and external storage? Yes, that might well be the case, Epic, but aren't you proving Apple's point and saying Apple gets to control what it is that they sell out in the marketplace? You're trying to change that to something that looks more like Android, aren't you effectively asking for it to be more insecure? A lot of Epic's thrust over this week of Apple testimony has been a little bit odd, a little bit scattershot, because ultimately they keep coming down to your security isn't perfect. And Apple can admit that, they haven't, but they could admit that completely and just say, you are right, it isn't perfect, we're always striving to do better. And that doesn't lose Apple the case. In fact, Epic saying yours isn't perfect. Oh, enterprise is just rife with problems. And Apple can say, yeah, you know what? Other app stores really are problematic. That's one of the reasons we're fighting against you in court here, Epic. They haven't really made the case that your security isn't perfect. Thus, we should be allowed to have our own store. We should be allowed to have our own payment processing. And again, these are all kind of separate from the ultimate question, which is, is Apple a monopolist? And is Apple illegally using the power it has over access to its operating system, presuming the court finds that that is a monopoly for purposes of the law? Is it illegally using that power to prohibit other stores and prohibit other in-app payment processing services? And I don't think Epic has made its case, and it doesn't look like they're going to on this, the second to last day, or in all likelihood, the last day, although Tim Cook's testimony will be exciting. Epic's lawyer is bringing up Schlayer, the first Mac malware known to be accidentally notarized by Apple, found last year. Yep, Apple makes mistakes. They're human beings. Doesn't really change the thesis, as we just talked about. And now questions about whether people use the Mac in sensitive moments. I think that it's pretty clear that your phone is with you in more sensitive times than your Mac is, but he agrees people probably use Macs at work, I would think, in the living room and in the bedroom. Sure, you can have a laptop in these various places. You can have a desktop in these various places, but... The likelier piece of technology that you're going to have, it's going to appear in those sensitive areas more often, is undoubtedly the one that fits in your pocket. So 
I do believe that they have defended their security pretty well. I don't believe that the second to last day of testimony moves the needle either direction, which means that in some respects, Apple is running out the clock because I think Epic is running out of time to really solidify its case. I think they've played some games both before the case started. We've seen it in the middle of this case that maybe have rubbed the judge the wrong way. Again, the judge probably isn't going to make the decision on a legal basis just based on the fact that Epic is playing games a little bit. Apple has undoubtedly played games themselves, as we saw in part of the pre-motions as well. But here we are at the end of all things, the last day of testimony. Epic's lawyer says he's still got 20 or 25 minutes of questioning of Ruben, which presumably will happen tomorrow. But we're breaking for the day and we'll pick up first with Tim Cook tomorrow morning. And that's the second to last day of testimony. You've basically now been with me for 14 hours of discussion of this case, and we're at the end. What do you think? What do you think Tim Cook could possibly say that would move the needle one way or the other in Apple's direction or Epic's? And of course, we will be covering that as the last testimony video uh, before we wait with bated breath for what the final opinion on this is going to be, final for the trial court, certainly not file for the appeals process. If you enjoy talking about Epic versus Apple, the business and law of video games, technology, and all this great stuff, please do consider supporting the channel. We can't do it without viewers and supporters like you. Check out our Patreon. We've got some good stuff in there. Streamlabs, the store, we've got shirts, we've got mugs. I'm going to add some designs in there pretty soon. Or just subscribe, ring the bell, upvotes, downvotes, Put this on forums that you attend. I can't get to everywhere on the internet. I really do appreciate it when people put them out in various forums or Reddits or anything else where we just can get extra exposure that YouTube and other places aren't giving us at this point in time. And tell your friends. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.